A few years ago, we grew and sold a business that forever changed our lives. At first, we really struggled trying to figure out which tools to use to help run and organize our community. But that all changed once we discovered Kajabi. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part, Kajabi doesn't take a cut of your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So you keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash M-U. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash M-U. Go to kajabi.com slash M-U and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. More and more entrepreneurs and investors are discovering the awesome franchise opportunities that exist across a variety of industries. Franchising can simply be the better path and interest in franchising is at an all time high. Lucky for you, John Austinson, founder of Fran Bridge Consulting and a past Millionaire University guest is here to help you explore the premier franchise opportunities today. John and his Frambridge Consulting team are part of the largest franchise brokerage in the U.S. and have vetted the market thoroughly. Frambridge is hands down the premier source for the best opportunities in the franchise world, including both active and passive opportunities. From tiny homes to youth soccer to industrial hoses to pets, senior care to mental health, and more. John has served as an Inc. 500 franchisor and is a multi-brand franchisee himself. And he does more placements than anyone else in the country. Sign up for a free consultation call with John today or get a free copy of his book, Non-Food Franchising, at FranBridgeConsulting.com. That's FranBridgeConsulting.com. Available in the U.S. and Canada. So it's you start with what you already have and figure out how do you build ideas around the assets versus thinking of some cool shiny thing and then finding the assets to kind of compete in that, realizing that it's probably still not going to be a play. Hey, hey, what is up, Millionaire University dudes and dudettes out there? I hope your 2024 is off to a fantastic start. I'm Brian Guerin, back with you on the Millionaire University podcast, and today I have a special treat for you. I had absolutely no preparation for this podcast outside of me texting my buddy, Nick Winnenberg, fellow entrepreneur, good friend of mine, and saying, hey, you're an entrepreneur. Let's talk about entrepreneur things on the Millionaire University podcast, to which he replied about two seconds later, absolutely. Give me a date and time. So here we are. What are the two things when you're starting a business that you really need to take into consideration and that can also have a part in what you do throughout the life of your business? And Nick was like, that's easy. The customer validation process as a startup and when to pivot and when to be persistent. 
So Nick and I did a little riffing on this, mostly Nick, because he's a genius. He's way smarter than me. Dude is just an entrepreneur on fire. I love him. So you guys are in for a treat today. We're going to learn from somebody who's in the trenches. He's pivoted multiple times. He's persisted multiple times. And he just dropped some serious gold nuggets on how to validate your customer base while you're in the startup phase. So enough of my chit chat. Let's get after it. Nick Winnenberg talking with me on the Millionaire University podcast. Let's go. Welcome back, everybody. I am with Nick Winnenberg today. He is a wonderful friend of mine. We have known each other for, gosh, probably going on seven years now. When I first moved into Loveland, Nick was one of the guys I reached out to as a young professional. We even worked together on the Loveland Young Professionals board, if you will. Nick is a serial entrepreneur, wonderful human being, a highly educated man. He's way smarter than me. Nick, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it, buddy. Absolutely. I love the fact you call me a serial entrepreneur. I feel like I should be out there like starting a new serial brand. Like we're going to do cocoa puffs, but we're going to make them small like Rice Krispies. I'm in. They're Nicky puffs. How about that? They're Nicky puffs. Gosh, that's actually what they used to call me in high school. So hopefully it doesn't get out. <laughs> Uh-oh. We're going to dig up, dig up some old uh, trauma here, aren't we? I gave you a little intro there. Give us a little bit of your story. Let's get some backstory of how Nick Wernenberg got to where he is today. I did graduate from The Ohio University over there in Athens, Ohio in 2015. My undergraduate degree was in entrepreneurship. I came out of OU, joined the family company, which is a staffing firm here in East Cincinnati. It's Express Employment Professionals. And then we launched a, another organization called On Brand Podcast Studio. At that time, it was Berg Tech. But we basically go through and help other organizations create podcasts. So it's actually great that I'm on someone else's podcast. It's not usually how this goes, but man. After that, expanded that side of it, we were offered developership as well. So now we actually mentor 17 other offices. So I guess it's kind of a weird intersection between a coaching role, we have our own company, and then we also launched another company too. That's more of the entrepreneurship venture. I did go back and got my master's degree as well. And that was a master's of science and management back at Ohio University. And that was a degree that focused mostly on business venturing, which again, entrepreneurship, and then also data analytics, because I'm a massive, massive nerd. So I thought, why not combine the two of them and kind of go from there? So I think that's a 10,000 foot view of kind of professional qualifications for this. It's definitely weird because it's a good hybrid between academia and also some professional experience in there too. But open book, happy to help however I can. Today, I wanted to have you on to chat with us about kind of the two really important things that you and I kind of agreed on before the episode here, that when you're starting a business, when you're dipping your toe in the water of entrepreneurship, maybe you're just about to take that first step of going and getting your LLC or taking something to market. There's two things that Nick and I agreed are really vitally important to be cognizant of when you're doing this. That first one is the importance of customer validation in your startup process and the second one we're going to get into is when to pivot and when to be persistent. I think these are just two kind of bugaboos that every entrepreneur crosses at some point in time. And we're going to have a uh, in-depth discussion on both of these today. So Nick, I kind of want to let you run with this on that first point of the importance of customer validation in the startup process. You know, maybe you're a pressure washing business, or maybe you are taking some little product you have or something you're going to distribute via an e-commerce business. Let's talk about that importance of that customer validation, because without that, it's really tough to start a business, right? Yeah, basically impossible <laughs> in my experience of nothing else. It's one of those things that we tend to gloss over because entrepreneurs are naturally high energy. 
we want to get out there. We want to get to market. We want to start selling. We want to start pushing and bring in all these people and say, look how great my idea is. I am guilty of that. Brian, I know that you're guilty of that. I've been there at least once. And if you look across the entire business scope, every successful business at least has had an issue with that sometime in the past, right? And it's really comes down to the skill set of an entrepreneur to go through and kind of take a step back and say, okay, I have a great idea. I think it's great. But really, how do I test it without spending a ton of assets? Because what you don't want to do is take an idea that you think is the best idea since sliced bread, take it to market and realize that nobody wants bread. I have a great mentor of mine. He's at Ohio University. And his question that he always asks is, will the dog eat the dog food? We can spend so much R&D. We can make sure the the dog food is perfectly nutritious, that it has all the things the dog needs. But if the dog doesn't eat the dog food, it's worthless. And that's a major stumbling block for most entrepreneurs because when they have this idea, if they want to go through the pressure washing business, if they don't do their due diligence and figure out what kind of startup are they going to launch and what do my customers actually want, they're going to fall into that trap early on and they're going to end up spinning the wheels, burning out. And even if their company is successful, there's the opportunity cost that it could be more successful if they spent more time on customer validation. And what I mean by that is, honest to God, just conversations you have to have with people that you think could be your customers. And we can't make them like super directed questions. And I'm just going to go back to like this idea that was thrown around for like historical trading card company. So instead of looking at like baseball cards, like Brian, I'm sure you collected looking at your memorabilia in the background, (laughs) could you do the same thing for historical figures? Could you go and get like a Gandhi card and trade it for a Stalin card? And could you do this in tech things? Let's pretend we're going to run with that idea and say, I want to launch this company. The first assumption I'm making is there's other nerds that think that would be cool. But I can't go to nerds and ask them, do I think that's cool? Because if I go to them and I said, hey, Brian, you're kind of nerdy. Let's pretend you're nerdy. I know you're not. But let's pretend you're nerdy. Don't you think a trading card company would be a good idea? What would you probably say? I'd probably say, yeah. Fantastic. Cool. Let's go find other nerds and talk to them too. And then I go to the next nerd and I say, I have this great idea. It's going to be a trading card company based on historical figures. Don't you think it's a good idea? You're going to get 35 nerds that all say, Nick, that's a great idea. We should launch it. Does that mean your idea is good? Nope. No. And that's the disconnect that you see so much in entrepreneurship is you have, you have this idea that you want to take your idea and share with other people and tell them why your idea is good, but you're not asking them questions. You're not engaging with your customers. You're going through and telling them to respond back the way that they think you want to hear and get them riled up. You're not doing validation. You're not doing your product or service. You have to ask these open-ended questions, and that's a major, major stumbling block you see with most ventures. So instead, if I'm look at a trading card company, and I go to you, Brian, I say, hey, Brian, what do you collect? I collect baseball cards. Cool. What's your favorite thing about baseball cards? It's the historical value on them and the nostalgia from being a kid when I collected them. Gotcha. So you have the historical piece that comes into it, both with your personal history, but also with the history of the players. So if I was going to ask you, like, what's the coolest card you have? What is that? Probably my Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. Why is that one so cool to you? A, it has actual value, monetary value, but also he came to prominence when I was a kid. He was like the guy I looked up to. What did he mean to you? Baseball was my life and half of it still is. And that card meant that I got Ken Griffey Jr.'s baseball card before he was Ken Griffey Jr. He had a little bit of legend before he came to the bigs, but that was his first card, and he took off, and he's a Hall of Famer. Gotcha. So if he wasn't a sports player, so if he was just someone that you looked up to as a mentor, do you think you'd attach the same amount of value if he had an impact to you, or do you think specifically because he's a sports ball player? 
Probably specifically because he was a ball player. So now you see a differentiation. Because A, now you can talk to more people about your business that may not be bought into it. And you can start to figure out what does my customers value because you ask them these questions. Because me and the entrepreneur, in the back of my brain, what I'm saying right now is, okay, there has to be an emotional connection. There has to be that nostalgia play. There has to be a meeting behind the card. So if I'm starting to think about product development, what, how does that play into product development? Well, I need to make sure that I go through and I pick people that are relevant enough. I can't go pick an obscure person that no one's heard about before. But if you go back and you figure out like, okay, so what's what's the indicators there? What kind of plays, what kind of pivots do I need to do to make sure that I'm keeping that on top of mind and focusing on those different strategies you pick up, right? So you can't go and talk to people that you think are your customers and get them bought into it. You have to ask these questions and you have to pull out these assumptions and you have to constantly test yourself. One of the major things that I focused on with my master's thesis was looking at entrepreneurship competencies and identifying, is it a personality type? Do you have an entrepreneur is someone that is born from the womb, ready to come out and start hustling? Or is it a skill set that you can learn and derive and teach one another? And the answer is, of course, both. But how much in each can you actually go through and influence? And I think a big part of that customer validation is that skill set. It's that trainable skill set that you have to practice and practice and practice and ask good questions and build that up. The personality thing, you got it, you don't got it. But that skill set, if you're not great at customer validation, you're starting your startup and it's already on a weak foot. Let's say you're starting, we'll use that pressure washing business as just a random example. It's a pretty low overhead business that you can start up, right? If you've got a car and a pressure washer, spend 250 bucks to get a pressure washer, you can go market yourself to homeowners who have mold growing on the side of their garage or their siding or whatever, right? Can you validate it by the fact that these other businesses already exist? Or do you need to dig a little deeper before you actually invest and start this up? Great question. Yeah, so that you're looking at the basic client validation and then competitor validation as well. Yes, you could go out and create a bakery or go to a pressure washing business by looking at other pressure washing businesses and saying, look, if they can support themselves and their crews, so can I. Is that the best play? And I don't know. Because here's the real conversation is if you go to that homeowner and ask them straight up, yo, I'm going to pressure wash aside your house. However much you're paying them, you can pay me instead, but I have better hair, so you should pick me. Or I have a stronger pressure washer, or I'm faster, or I will be price competitive, or we're going to do a razor model, or we have hub and spoke with multiple distribution crews. All that stuff can differentiate, but is that the time for that conversation? Because instead, I want the conversation to sound like this. Hey, Mr. Homeowner, what's the biggest thing that you think is impacting the appearance of your house right now? And if I ask 100 homeowners what they're focused on, 75 of them say, oh my gosh, I have this moss growing on my roof, or I have a crack in my driveway, or my windows aren't clean, or my yard is unkept. And I'm looking at the assets that I got, and I got a truck and income to invest somewhere. Does it make sense for me to invest my assets in that pressure washer if 75% of the customers are saying, it's not the pressure washer that's getting me, it's something else? And that's important validation. So yes, you could 100% look at the market and make a supplemental product and compete on one of the factors you want to compete on. But if you don't have the conversations with those customers to see what they actually value, you're leaving a massive piece of the market. So you could totally do it and you could be successful doing it. But is there an opportunity cost for you to get more success if you just took a little extra time and talked to the customers about what they actually value based off what you perceive they value? And you could use this 
almost as a product or service enhancement, right? So let's say in this example, you go around and you survey 30 homes in a subdivision. A high enough percentage of them agree, yeah, the mold on my siding is like driving me nuts. But also they say, you know, my driveway is getting kind of dark. That could probably be pressure washed too. And the fact is, uh, you know, this neighborhood is 30 years old. A lot of these driveways are starting to crack. Now as the entrepreneur, you can say, okay, I am getting validation for my pressure washing intention But also X percent of these homes have cracks in their driveway. Maybe I bring along crack filler and offer that as an upsell, right? Now you've just enhanced your business by X percent by providing even more value to your clients. 100%. And while you're there, why don't partner, right? So you're there and you go and you figure out, oh, hey, we're doing this, this mold repair. And by the way, your grass is looking a little bit rough or they tell you, man, my grass is, okay, I might not want to invest in that company, but I'll go to Brian. Brian has a lawn care company. I'm going to talk to Brian, see if I can get him involved. And let's do some revenue sharing. Let's do. So always keeping your eye out for opportunities is massive. We've kind of built this almost like a little web from that starting point of how do you validate a customer to now we're talking about the ability for you to go out and possibly have affiliates or either affiliates or partner with companies and do a rev share through referrals. Because I know, especially in, in my agency, we serve home improvement companies, right? High ticket home improvement companies. I'll give you an example. Actually, two of my clients came from guys that did home improvement services at my home. The first guy gave me a referral to the second guy because after my water line blew out, I said, hey, by the way, do you happen to know anyone that builds decks? Mine's about to fall over. And he goes, as it turns out, two of my best friends just started a deck building company. You ought to talk to them. When they're able to do that and they have partnership agreements together, do a little bit of a rev share, now everybody's winning, not just the ability to make more money, but now your value to your clients is through the roof because you can help them solve a bunch of problems. And as a homeowner, and Nick, you know this as a homeowner, if I can go to one person and he can connect me to three others to solve all the freaking issues with our homes that that always crop up, then I've got it made in the shade because we all want to be the guy who knows a guy, right? And if I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy and they can all solve my problems and I can trust all of them to do it well, now we're just happy homeowners. I think you're hitting on something passive and that's how do you niche down your company, right? One of the major assumptions that happens and usually the journey of the, the entrepreneurs, I want to be everything to everybody. And it's the death, right? Every entrepreneur either knows that and has tried to do that and doesn't work or whatever. And it's a perfect example of what you're saying, Right. If you went downstairs and talked to your plumber and you're like, hey, Mr. Plumber, I have a deck. Can you fix my deck too? If that plumber is like, yeah, bro, I'll fix your deck, there's a problem. (laughs) I don't want my plumber fixing a deck, but I want him to know who's going to be that person. I think marketing is perfect. I mean, you look at the marketing company you got. At first, you'd be like, I'm going to do everything for everybody. But what you just said is I'm going to focus it down. I'm only going to be looking at one small targeted niche. and I'm going to be doing this one service line and I will go through and I'll find the partner organizations to bring my need to. Think of the extra value you're offering that company just because you have the network effect operating for you. I'll happily admit to the world that it has taken me about six years to niche down and find that ability to not just be industry agnostic. I used to proudly tell people, oh, I'm industry agnostic. I can help you do this, do that, do the other thing. After a while, it gets to be where you're a jack of all, master of none. There's nothing wrong with starting out being broad, but being able to narrow it down really narrows that focus. And when you can hone in on that niche, that's a game changer for your business. And that's what we've done at my agency with starting to focus on home improvement companies and their entire acquisition and retention system, because that's where we have the deepest impact. And when I get plenty of inquiries from other companies that are not related to what our core mission, 
which is making sure no uh, business ever gets screwed by a marketing agency ever again. That's an important thing to be able to say is we specialize for businesses like yours. So you start that broad and bring it in. So I know we're going on a little bit of a tangent on that side because we could, between Nick and I, we could go on tangents all day long. We might be here for 12 hours and make a 13 episode pitch out of this. But the way that you make that six years go faster is through validation. If you would have started out asking those questions and figuring out this is my niche and this is the value that I'm bringing to this specific company, think of the money you'd save. Oh yeah. The amount of money burnt through trying to figure that out, I can happily attest to you that it's plenty. When it comes to, let's say you get in, you start your business, you got validated, you have a couple core offers, core niches that you serve, you're doing well. Maybe you've even got a little bit of revenue going. Let's say you get six, eight, 10, maybe 12 months in, your top line, your revenue is starting to stagnate. Or maybe there's other issues in the growth side of the business that you might not even be privy to yet, but something needs to happen. Do you pivot or do you stick with the process? This is like the ultimate question. I feel like I have faced this no less than five times (laughs) in my six years of doing this. It's a fantastic question. Of course, every entrepreneur, every venture is different for what that advice should be. I can attest to kind of the thought process I go through when I hit that situation. Because if some entrepreneur tells you that they have never gone through that, they're lying to you. It's the ultimate question and kind of the litmus test of entrepreneurs is do they pivot? Do they have the confidence to pivot? Are they willing to to go on the line? But at the same time, you have to remain persistent sometimes. And there's a thousand different examples to look at this. And I mean, to use the on-brand, the podcast recording studio as an example of this. We did break fix IT work for about a year and a half before we got into the content creation for the, the podcast recording studio. And with that, we would help other people fix their computers or do their phone systems or do the network. And again, we tried to be jack of all, right? And we eventually narrowed it down to we were basically help fix for computer workstations and also VoIP phone systems, voice over IP internet. We were operating revenue. I mean, we were good. We were cash flush. We were moving in the right direction. But what ended up happening was we were paying for the one technician we had, but we couldn't make the jump in revenue to cover the second technician. And no matter how much we tried, we would go past bandwidth. We'd get to the point of the bandwidth that he's working 60, 70, 80 hours a week on call constantly is affecting his mental health. And we looked at the budget sheet and we said, for us to get to that next place, it's going to be a $60,000 investment. Are we confident with what we're doing? The problem was, it was a scalability issue. You can't scale technician by technician by technician with how we were set up. So we had to have the come to Jesus moment to say, is that what we want to be? And I think a big part of that conversation is having the right expectations when you start your venture of where do you want to see this, this taking you? If you want to start a lifestyle business, that's fine. If you want to go and you want to shoot for the stars and you want to launch a multi-million dollar company that you're going to take IPO, that's fine. But those have two different requirements, two different expectations. And that's one of the major indicators for that pivot or persist conversation. If you have that lifestyle business and the opportunity cost for you to go work for somewhere else and you could go fly off in the sunset and make more money and live an easier life and that's what's calling you, do it. At the same time, if you have that persist, if you have that desire to do more, then do it. So A, it's what's your expectations and is this continuing to be worth what it's worth? Or is there something else we can do to bring in more of an opportunity cost? Is there something else that we can invest in and take that assets? And that's a really hard conversation for people because it requires a lot of self-inflection, which people don't like doing. 
because you need to have an honest look at A, the PLs, and then also B, your lifestyle. What is this actually showing for you? So A, it starts with looking at inward, figuring out what's expectations. Am I continuing to achieve the goals? B, look at the financials, see what's happening. Is there something that's broken in the process or is there something that just hasn't hit yet? Sales will hit over time. Right. And that's usually the first thing that's broken. If the answer is you're not bringing enough revenue, do more sales. You can persist through that usually as long as you validate your product and you have confidence there's a niche product for it. If it's something that's a scalability issue or an issue with the core business structure, an issue with one of your partners, then it's probably time to make a bigger pivot and figure out how to get around that. So when you were using your example with Berg Tech and that you and your your brother pivoted masterfully into on-brand podcasts from Berg Tech IT Solutions, which was really cool to watch from the outside because you had you had a great business model like it was turning out enough revenue but was it that first thing you noticed wasn't it was more of a people problem right it was the one technician he was starting to get burnt but even with him starting to get burnt there wasn't enough revenue to bring on another person do you feel like if you were able to bring on that person at that time that the business model didn't need to be pivoted away from or was it more of the people problems that we created with our business model needed to be pivoted from? That's a great question. I would say it's the people problem. And high recommendation, I don't know if I can do shameless plugs for people, but Michael Gerber wrote a really good book called E-Myth Revisited. Have you read it, Brian? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So favorite thing about that is there's three roles. You got the entrepreneur, you got the technician, you got the manager. The technician's really good job at doing the thing. They're the really good job at fixing computers or a really good job at baking the cake or power washing sides. You have the manager who's really good at managing the technicians to make sure they're operating as efficiently as possible. And you have the entrepreneur who has the idea to say, hmm, maybe instead of siding, we should do roofs. So you need all three of those in any venture in any organization. And if you can't find them inside the organization, you have to look outside. The problem with what we were saying in that organization wasn't the fact that the business model wasn't there, the customers weren't there, the revenue wasn't flowing. The problem was I had a technician who wanted to focus on how do I fix computers and wasn't able, didn't want to make the leap to management. And it really was the didn't want to make the man leap. Because at the end of the day, had all the technical abilities to do it, but that's not what his expectation was. That's not what he went into business for. So for us, it was a core business model because we looked at it and we said, okay, we have the people problem that we have an amazing technician that doesn't want to make the leap to entrepreneur. How do we build the program around the asset that we got and focus on keeping a technician as a technician, doing what they want to passionate about at the same time, figuring out how to build the organization around that core piece. Shopify has already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash MU, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash MU to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash MU. Want to know a secret? There's more to becoming a millionaire than making money. 
We talk a lot about building businesses and taking the road less traveled to achieve your goals. But the most successful entrepreneurs we know will tell you investing and growing your money is an essential component to creating wealth, which is why we're really excited about today's sponsor for this episode, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. It's never too late to start growing, and it's never too early either. You've heard us say about a million times on this podcast that it takes small, consistent steps to build big results. And we love Acorns and how accessible it is to people at all levels of investment knowledge. So head to acorns.com forward slash MU or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier one compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. The important disclosures at acorns.com slash MU. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC. Acorns is an SEC registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities LLC. Member FINRA slash SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How do you avoid the well-known shiny object syndrome, right? The old business model, maybe you and the business partner have decided this might not be right. It's time to pivot. How did you know what you wanted to pivot into? And then was it a process of like completely starting from scratch, like going back to that step one of the customer validation process? How did you guys handle that? A big part of it's looking at the inside out versus outside in ideation. Where do business ideas come from? So you see something cool, you see like, oh, hey, crypto mining, that seems like a thing. I should go buy 16 graphics cards and slap them in my basement and see how it plays out. That's the shiny object thing, right? That's the influence, that's the media, that's everything we're seeing doing it. But I would argue that it usually needs to come from an inside out. You look at your assets, you look at what you got, you look at what's what your skill set is, you look at what's fiscally responsible for you to do, and you start the ideation with that. So to go back to the guy that has a truck, your power washer has a truck, he has a power washer, he has different tools and equipment. He should look at what he has right now to figure out how do I bootstrap this and leverage this to get me to that startup phase. And a big part of it's like, yes, crypto is a thing. 100% crypto is a thing. Am I a financial expert to go through and know what I'm doing in crypto? No. Could I be? Maybe. But there's better opportunity for me to go do something else instead. So for the tech company, it was looking at, I got an amazingly brilliant technician that's great at audio producing. He's a musician already, so he has all the instruments. He has all the sound recording equipment. Those assets are already set up. And by the way, there's this new thing that's happening that everyone wants to create a podcast. Can we leverage that trend? So it's you start with what you already have and figure out how do you build ideas around the assets versus thinking of some cool shiny thing and then finding the assets to kind of compete in that, realizing that it's probably still not going to be a play. And you see the serial entrepreneur that's going to be like, hey, I'm going to be a crypto miner, right? And then we'll be a subject matter expert and we're going to launch a course on crypto. You see this transition a lot that you have the entrepreneurs and then you have the actual people that are doing the business. Does that make sense? Right. You have the the innovators and that we could go for days on the different levels of entrepreneur styles and types, like the innovator, the tactician, 
the implementer. But it's really easy if you are skewed towards the innovator side, the imaginative side of entrepreneurship. It is so easy. I can't tell you how many different things in the last like four hours I've taken that I thought about. I should get into that. I should get into that. It is very easy to get in that hamster wheel and you have to be able to, to rein yourself back and pull yourself back. And I did think, you know, kind of following you from afar, watching you switch from the IT company into on-brand podcasts was a absolute masterclass in knowing where the opportunities are and knowing what your current assets allow you to do. I've been in your studio. You guys have an awesome studio, tons of equipment. Your brother is a technical genius with all of that stuff. And you guys produce awesome podcasts and you're off and running. That's the perfect definition of a pivot. I like to think it's also pivot and adapt, right? Because within on brand, you guys have adapted no less than a few times already, right? It's big man against the wall, right? And that's the pivot thing. Because like after we figured that's like a, a we, we need to make the pivot, right? We need to make the transition. Let's just talk about what's happened in podcasting over the past year. And I mean literally 12 calendar months from 123, 2024. I'm just getting released, right? So it used to be, how good's your setup? How good's the audio quality? What's your distribution strategy? Who's going to write the show notes for you? Who's going to do the titles? Who's going to do the descriptions? Who's going to do the linking? Who's going to do the social stuff? All that stuff we could in-house, all right? And that was a value add that we could offer to our clients. And then with uh, Squadcast and with Riverside and with these different AI platforms, we saw the transition. Because what we saw was you saw these world-class, I mean, amazing multi-million dollar per episode downloads being released on Zoom mics and Riverside's or virtual platforms, right? And then you saw AI now going through and writing the show notes and writing the social posts and going through and, and doing a lot of the editing for you. So what we saw was more opportunities to pivot. So then, like, even after we had the idea, like, okay, let's move into the podcast world. We're going to make a really cool studio. We're going to sell it directly to, to clients, and they're going to buy into a marketing thing. We ran that for a while. Then you start seeing these pivots, and then the cost comparisons start coming out. Do I want to go work with on brand and pay, you know, 700 bucks an episode to create a really high level professional content? Or do I want to jump on Riverside and make 80% the amount of quality, but at the same time, it's $24 a month versus it being $700, right? So you start to see this value shift and it's as an entrepreneur, how do you pivot to that? So as an entrepreneur, you're never done pivoting and there's always going to be pivots. It's knowing when do you persist, when do you pivot? I could have drawn the line in the sand, right? I could have said, okay, no, we're going to shoot for that top 5% of the niche market that wants the super high quality that they want to do ASMR bullshit, right? Like whatever they want to focus on, they, they, I'm going for the top of the line niche, but I didn't, right? I said, okay, cool. Let's adopt the technology. Let's figure out how to do it better than the competition and make them more faster and cleaner than what we're seeing in the market. That was a pivot conversation itself. So you're right. There, even after you make a big pivot, there's these small little correctional pivots that you'll always need to make or you're going to fall behind, especially when you're something as innovative of podcasting or marketing or social media. Right. Well, it's being able to pivot with especially the advent of AI, right? Well, it's been around for a while, but this year, obviously, it has exploded. And there's just been the fear across multiple industries of, oh, AI is going to replace us or replace this. Copywriting is dead. You know, podcasting, you know, editing and creation as we know it is dead. It's all changed. But then on your end, it becomes more of an education thing too, right? Like where someone's like, well, why would I use Zombrand? I can just go use a, you know, a Riverside or a Squadcast, do it myself, use AI, blah, 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 and, and be done. But now you're like, well, yes, AI is there. And yes, you can use it. 
but you are going to miss out on the nuance of the human touch on this. You know, just because AI is there, it can replace a human in certain things, but it cannot do it nearly as well as the human nuance that would be missing would be there, right? So is part of your job pivoting into educating on that stuff as well? Yeah, and a big part of it's looking at what's the value that we're bringing, right? There always has to be the bottom line value. If the clients don't see it, you shouldn't be doing it because in the, the day, that's just kind of highway robbery, right? There has to be, you have to provide more value than what you're exchanging for. Is a part of that education and the producing and the conversations, yes. But the other part of it, too, is the revenue side, right? And figuring out if you can't adapt a core principle of your business, how do you keep what's working and then go through and add and diversify your revenue streams? That way you can continue to bring in revenue. And what I think about is that power washer, right? Or you can pick whatever example you want in, in the marketing space. But from the power washer, let's say he's been running all the different service lines and 80% of his revenue is currently coming from power washing the side of the house. But now there's this new vinyl that comes out that makes it so moss doesn't grow on houses anymore. The first thing that that power washer guy's going to do is going to be like, ah, man, like, okay, well, listen, only 10% of my house has bought it. I don't have anything to worry about. But over the time, if he doesn't see that far enough ahead and he doesn't see that vinyl as a threat, he's going to be left behind. AI is doing that for a lot of these different companies right now. And you're seeing this little scratch the surface thing, but realistically, the impact AI is going to have across all of our industries, A, we don't fully comprehend, and B, we are just scratching the surface. So now it's entire like, do I pivot and go back and say like, okay, is it going to be harder or easier to make podcasts? It's going to continue to be easier, right? And it's going to get easier. And there's going to be books written. There's going to be podcasts on how to make podcasts. There's going to be podcasts on how to make podcasts about making podcasts. There's going to be this funnel. There's going to be this creation. So you have to look at the trends overall and make your pivots looking at the trends instead of just looking at what's happening right now and making pivots from that. But also at the same time, comparing it to something simple. So for example, mowing your lawn is easy, right? But there are tens of thousands of companies that exist to mow your lawn because you don't want to, right? So that same concept can apply to AI, right? Like to companies that do things where the company even uses AI to benefit themselves and their their product, their service, and their customers. But as a business owner who wants to produce a podcast, maybe I don't want to deal with it because I, I just, I want to pay someone to handle it, right? So is the ultimate threat still mitigated by being a top company who produces the finest quality work for those who don't want to deal with doing it themselves. Does that still exist in, in terms of AI? Yeah, short term, yes. You vacuum your own house as well. My wife loves vacuuming, but I do occasionally push the vacuum. We just went and we bought a, it's a new vacuum thing. It's like 1200 bucks. My wife was in She's obsessed with this thing. It vacuums. What, wait, what is it? We just got the shark, but that was not $1,200. This one's nuts. It does like room mapping for you. It goes through, it tracks your pets. It can follow your pets. Like it's insane, <laughs> right? And it was 1200 bucks, but literally I'm never going to vacuum again. It automatically empties the dirt and the, the water. And then there's a pump that comes from the hose. Like what? it literally, I don't touch it. And it just vacuums the house now. So let's go back to lawn care thing. You said that, okay, I love mowing my lawn, but most people don't like it. So they're going to go and hire this company to go through and mow their yard. What's next, right? If I could, instead of hiring the company, invest in a virtual lawnmower that goes through and basically is a Roomba for my yard and automatically 3D map tracks my yard and go through and knocks it out for me and gets it down to that perfect fine detail or go, or all right, that does. And it's just getting better, right? Or do I go hire the company still? If I was a betting man, I'm looking at five years from now, I can still hire the company. The tech isn't there yet. Look at electronic cars, right? Or electric cars. 
the infrastructure is not there yet. But if you're a betting man and you're going to say 10 years from now, do I think we're going to see industry growth inside of people-driven lawn care services or robotic AI lawn, lawn care services? I'm probably going to pick robotics. So again, it's a short term. Short term, could I pick up market share by focusing on the human element? Absolutely, yes. And I plan on it. And we all should. But in the back of our mind as entrepreneurs, we always have to be aware of the next pivot. We always have to be thinking about what's happening in the market right now that's going to impact this industry and how am I going to prepare for it? And even with that pivot, you're thinking in the back of your mind, okay, podcasting is getting easier. I need to continue to show people how to create podcasting. Back of my mind, I know there's going to be a supplement of podcasting one day. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know it's going to be there, right? The big part of it's like, what's going to happen to social media? Are we still all going to be massive consumers of social media? Facebook is not dying. The old bastard isn't dead yet. It's still producing. Right, exactly, <laughs> for sure. But looking at like some of the trends you're seeing, like, what are those trends going to be? How's it impact podcasting? So like a lot of the pivots you're making now, A, know your future pivots, know what's happening, know what's coming downstream, and always keep that full picture in mind. Don't think about what's going to happen by the end of the year. Think about what's going to happen three, five, ten years down the road. What trends are we seeing? What can we capitalize on now to figure out if it's a pivot or a persist thing? Yeah, absolutely. And to your comment on Facebook, while Facebook is still the highest converting in terms of lead generation for businesses... At my agency, we're starting to look around the corner too because X, the artist formerly known as Twitter, <laughs> ads are making a comeback, right? It's the basement level right now because they've gone through a lot of turbulence. There's a lot of chaos over at Twitter, right? A lot of advertisers vacated the platform. Well, what happens when mass amounts of advertisers vacate a platform? Ad space gets really cheap. It's just like the real estate market, right? So we're starting to see a big comeback in Twitter ads. I'm, I'm going to call it Twitter forever because X, Elon, you're great, but that was a terrible name. X, whatever. That means nothing. I'm starting to look at making investments and being able to add that as a platform to our repertoire, right? For lead generation for our clients. Because right now, the biggest players or the people who see the biggest benefits on Twitter ads are typically e-commerce brands, bigger brands, bigger companies, you know, smaller local businesses, medium-sized small businesses, are not necessarily using Twitter very much. And I'll be the first to admit, I've never had to use Twitter ads because there is enough from Facebook, Instagram, Google, website traffic. There's enough to keep these businesses busy. But for the ones we work with, the ones who are growth-minded, ambitious, and intend to get not to the next level, but to the next four, five, and six levels, there's other platforms that we need to investigate. And right now, there's one sitting right under our nose that has inexpensive ad space. So that's an example of pivoting in the in the marketing side of the world where it's just knowing where the next big thing's coming from, not knowing it, but just doing your research and investigating on it and just looking for the intangibles, the obvious things like, okay, all these massive brands left Twitter, ad space probably isn't very expensive. Do a lot of people go to Twitter still? Yes. That's where like news happens. Lots of people are there. It might be a completely different market audience than the people who hang out on Facebook, but guess what? That's awesome because now, now you're reaching more people who probably need your service that don't happen to hang out on the other platforms where you're, you're making your nut right now. So knowing when to pivot, knowing when to be persistent is huge. And I think if you're able to blend those together, the best entrepreneurs and ones who, who have the wealth and have been successful, they knew when to pivot, but they knew when to be persistent. Yeah. And if we all just figure it out, we'd be way more successful than we actually are. So it's, it's an art, not a science in that one, but <laughs> that's for dang sure. Yeah. If we had it perfectly figured out, we'd be bajillionaires, but at least that's the path we're on. Right. So, 
Awesome. Well, Nick, we should probably go ahead and land the plane or else you and I could go for hours. I'm down if you're – again, I can clear my calendar, but we'll just come back next time. That's good to know because I'm probably going to have to have you back because there's a lot of awesome tidbits in that brain yours that a lot of folks in our audience, uh, myself included, can benefit from. So do you have any parting words for the aspiring entrepreneurs or maybe those in our, our listening audience who are already entrepreneurs that are about to take that first step? Yeah. I mean, obviously look at Millionaire University. The work that you guys are doing inside the organization is absolutely fantastic. I love the kind of school of hard knocks approach, I'm going to call it. I don't know what what you guys formally call it, but focusing on what the end of mind is brilliant. Keep looking at your business like a science. As an entrepreneur, you are a scientist. Look at the experiments. How can you experiment in business? How can you make it better? And focus on the bottom line, but also focus on the people and the impact that you're making. Awesome, Nick. Well, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. You are a rock star, great friend, and we had a wonderful time with you on the Millionaire University podcast today, man. You take it easy. We'll catch you next time. All righty. Let's hear it for Nick. Dude drops some serious knowledge when it comes to validating your customer base while being in the startup process. What a different way to think about, does my product or service fit in this market? Will people buy it? Those probing questions of being able to get people to expand upon what it is that they want and why they need it. Just thinking outside of the box. And then Nick having multiple experiences and needing to pivot, but also needing to be persistent in whatever area it is, is just invaluable knowledge that we can have as entrepreneurs when it comes to getting our business off the ground and keeping it going, staying afloat. That's one of the hardest things to do. Once you get that business started, you've crossed that plateau. I can't tell you how many times in my seven years of being a business owner that that has come true. It's come true for me just in the last few months. I made a major pivot in my own business and it's making a huge difference already. Knowing what's coming down the pike, being able to see around those corners Hope you guys found some valuable knowledge in here. We love bringing it to you. We can't wait to see you on the next episode of Millionaire University. Hey, Eric Fisher here. And if you love the conversations and lessons happening on this show, and you've heard my voice before, you'll love my show, Beyond the To-Do List. It's a podcast about productivity and getting things done in all the areas where we wear multiple hats and roles, but also about the true meaning of productivity, living a more meaningful life. Look, you've got a never-ending to-do list, but add this podcast to your to-do list and it will help you tackle the rest. Go right now, wherever you're listening to this, and search Beyond the To-Do List and hit follow or subscribe. Start listening and get that boost for your productivity that you've been needing. Again, that's Beyond the To-Do List. Search in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.